with being an advocate for the right to choose self-protection in the public sphere. Now, you know you've hit a nerve with the mainstream media when the New York Times uses its lead editorial to scold your ideas as being dangerous. The New York Times and liberal elites were shocked to see a Washington, D.C. lawyer and mother of six to go before the United States Senate and tell the assembled senators that guns are the great equalizer and that any newly proposed gun control regulations would have a disparate negative impact, particularly on women. Now, I was able to tell the senators that millions of American women want their legislators to protect a woman's right to choose to defend herself and her family through her Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. A woman's ability to arm herself for protection is even more consequential than for a man because guns are the great equalizer in any violent confrontation. Now, if you want to know about the Second Amendment, you might have heard people say, oh, it's just about being in a militia. It's just about having the right to have a gun if you're in the Army or in the National Reserve. But the truth is, lawful self-defense is the key, key component to the Second Amendment right to keep the fair arms. Now, we have this really important question that we're all thinking about. What should America do about gun violence in our nation? I don't know if you all follow Twitter or social media, but there's a big effort this week to wear orange. And orange is supposed to be a symbol of fighting gun violence and imposing more regulations on individual citizens' right to keep and bear arms. Now, let me first throw out there, we all want a safer society, right? people on the left, people on the right, we have the same goal. The problem is that we differ on whether any particular proposal that is put before our federal government, the legislator, Congress, the president through executive actions, or at the state or local level, we have a different idea whether any particular proposal will actually create a safer society. Now, right now, you may not know this, but private owners have 300 million guns in private hands right now. And the truth is that you will not hear on NBC, you will not hear on CBS, you will not hear on NPR, but the truth is that women can and often do use guns to protect themselves and their loved ones from violence. Now in this talk today I want to cover three points with you. I want to go through the history of the Second Amendment and dispel some of the myths. I want to go through the facts about private go gun ownership and public safety. And then I also want to talk about the role of the media and its bias and the media's ideology that influences everyone who pays attention to the stories that are coming out from the media when they're trying to analyze this issue. Now, let's look at the history of the Second Amendment first. The Second Amendment is part of the Bill of Rights which were adopted at the same time as the Constitution, and it is in the black letter law, what lawyers call the black letter law of the Second Amendment. You can pull a copy of the Constitution and see that it's written in there that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Those are the literal words in the text of the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. Now, there are people, other people, perhaps on the left side of the political spectrum, 
who believe that we should start inventing new rights. They use a euphemism for this, saying that we have a living constitution. But the truth is that they want to kill off part of our constitution that's in the black letter of the Bill of Rights, and that would be the Second Amendment. There's no better example of them trying to create rights and excise rights that they're not fond of than the Second Amendment. The truth is, anybody who knows history understands that armed citizens founded this nation during the American Revolution, and they enshrined gun ownership as one of the critical, critical civil liberties in the Bill of Rights. Now, many people who oppose the Second Amendment would like you to believe that the Second Amendment is just an embarrassing oddity of work that might include flintlock muskets if they were really pushed on it. But the truth is, history completely dispels this myth. It was such a critical point that in the Federalist Papers, one of uh, the authors of the Federalist Papers was Alexander Hamilton, and if you all pay attention to what's going on at Broadway, on Broadway right now, there's a really popular Broadway show about Alexander Hamilton, and he wrote in the Federalist Paper 29, the best possible security against a standing army is a large body of citizens, little at all inferior to them in discipline and the use of arms, who stand ready to defend their own rights and the rights of their fellow citizens. So that's Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers, at the very time was saying it was critical to keep this individual uh, right to keep and bear arms. Also James Madison, who's one of my other favorite founding fathers, he wrote in Federalist 46 that the people have the ultimate authority, the people would develop plans of resistance for any encroachment by the federal government, and he observed that the free and gallant people of the United States, unlike the people of the rest of the world, had the right to bear arms to protect themselves and their citizens, and other citizens. So unlike other individual rights that you think of, and that this is part of my speech title as well, we live in a pro-choice society. That is a right that was created by the Supreme Court that's not in the literal text of the Bill of Rights, but yet the Second Amendment is in the literal text of the Bill of Rights. So let's look, dig a little further into the Bill of Rights, the text itself. There are only two other times in the Bill of Rights that we have individual rights that are guaranteed to the people. The first is in the First Amendment, where the people are given a right to assemble and petition their government. Obviously, that's an individual right that each of us has individually in collection with other people, but we, on our own, can go assemble and petition the government for redress of our political desires. The other amendment that is an individual right is the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment guarantees the right of the people against unreasonable searches and seizures. So if you think about that, too, it doesn't make any sense if it's not right. And the key here, when we're looking at self-defense and the Second Amendment and a violent society that has decreased in violence over the last decade, we need to do what works. So when we look at the First Amendment, the right of the people to assemble and petition their government, the Fourth Amendment to be uh, not have unreasonable searches and seizures, and the Second Amendment 
keeps all of these other rights intact. Now, we had a very important Supreme Court decision in 2008 called DC versus Hellard, where the court upheld the individual right of a person to have a firearm for traditionally lawful purposes like self-defense. And it's very important to note that the Supreme Court, in this opinion, said that this right is unconnected with service in the militia. So you'll probably hear this if you get into a discussion with somebody at college or a friend or family member, and they'll say, yeah, yeah, I believe in the Second Amendment, but that only deals with the militia. That's only the right to bear arms if you're in a militia. Well, the Supreme Court in 2008 said that's not the case. It's unconnected with service in the militia. Then there was a companion case that applied, uh, the first case, D.C. versus Heller, just concerns the District of Columbia. But we had another case, McDonald, a few years later, that allowed that decision to be applied to all of the states. So those are two very important cases for you to know about if you get into these discussions with anybody. Now it's very interesting because the liberal dissenters, the Supreme Court justices who did not agree with the majority opinion of the court, they decried the court's announcement of a new constitutional right to own and use firearms for private purposes. Now these are the same liberal justices who are always looking to invent new rights that have not been granted by the people through their representatives by petitioning the representatives in the legislatures to create these rights. These liberal justices look at the Bill of Rights, see that the Second Amendment is in there in the literal text, and then they decry that the Supreme Court has created a new right. It is completely illogical. I mean, they are the same types of justices who said that the shadowy secretions of the penumbral emanations of the Bill of Rights create new rights, like Roe v. Wade. And they are so focused on banning private gun ownership that they want to make sure that, in, in this case in D.C., that there was no operable firearm that a woman or a man could have in D.C. in order to defend themselves and their families. And if you look at the logic of this opinion, this dissent by the liberal justices, they analyzed it like this. Some, some citizen in D.C. wants to have an operable firearm for self-defense. Well, it's okay for D.C. to say, you can't do that. It's against the law. We'll throw you in jail if you do that. Because if you look at Maryland or Virginia, those two states allow target practice. So you could leave D.C., take a, and this is what the court said, take a brief subway ride to Virginia or Maryland and exercise your Second Amendment right. Completely <coughs> missing the point that the right is not about target practice. The right is about a fundamental right to defend yourself, your family members, your loved ones, and other people who are vulnerable. So you can just see that there's a dramatically different view of the Bill of Rights from the liberal justices and the constitutionalist justices on the Supreme Court. So I want to move into the second part of what I'd like to share with you today and talk about private firearm ownership and public safety. Now, 
on a personal level, I have been writing about political stuff for many years, and people kept wanting me to write about the Second Amendment, and especially in the wake of very news-making events like the Aurora movie theater shooting, uh, after some of the school shootings, and that's a very difficult topic to wade into because people are very emotional, it's very disturbing when you hear about these horrific tragedies that happen and of course you imagine yourself there, you imagine what the parents and the family members have to go through if they learn that one of their loved ones has died in a school, in college, in a movie theater. So I was looking at how can I communicate to people who are willing to listen a different way to think about the Second Amendment and the individual right to keep and bear arms. Because right after those types of situations happen, everyone has this idea, well, if we just take all the guns away and only cops and military people can have guns, then we'll be able to stop the movie theater shootings and the school shootings. But they don't understand that the truth is very, very different. So I kind of keep, kept my eye out looking for stories because when you go into the public sphere to try to make legal arguments, it's very important to have a story that illustrates the point that you are trying to persuade people about. So I kept my eyes open looking for a story that tugged at me, at my heart. I, I do have six children and I read the story about this woman in Oklahoma. She was very young and her husband had just died from cancer. And while he was in his final days of cancer, he had a lot of prescription drugs that were very <coughs> valuable on the market that were prescribed to him because he was suffering from cancer. And this young woman had just lost her husband a few days before. She had a 10-month-old ten, ten son. And one day, she's out in the rural area of Oklahoma, and she hears banging on her door. She doesn't answer the door, but behind the door are two young men who have decided that they want to break into her house and steal her husband's medication because they're very valuable. So she's there. She decides she's going to call 911 and do the right thing, get the police out there to handle this situation. One of the young men had a foot-long hunting knife, which is a very important point that I'm going to tell you a little more data about later in the story. But I could totally put myself in that situation. You're with a 10-month-old child. You are out in the countryside. There are two young, strong men trying to get into your house to, to run. Well, you don't even know why they're trying to get into your house at that point. You just know that they are up to no good. And she called 911. She was on the phone with them, and they said, we cannot get to you in time. And she had a shotgun. And when they finally broke down the door, which demonstrated they were up to absolutely no good, she's, she thought to herself, it's either going to be them, or it's going to be my baby, and it's not going to be my baby. And so she shot at them, killed one of the attackers, and the other one fled. Now all this happened when she followed exactly what she was supposed to do. She called the police. They told her they couldn't get there in time and she had to take action to protect herself and her child. And she couldn't leave the house. There wasn't anywhere to go. It wasn't like she could flee the situation. And that so deeply moved me, that story, in conjunction with 
all of the other stories that we hear about community shootings and school shootings, and I thought, I want to get beneath the surface on this. I want to do some research and find out exactly what is going on with violence in our country and gun ownership. And in my research, I realized that guns reverse the balance of power in a violent confrontation. So looking at the Department of Justice website, I found that over 90% of violence in the United States occurs without a firearm being involved. So in that situation, we know that any time, like in 90% of the cases where someone is being attacked, the other person does not have a firearm. So if you enable the person who's being attacked, who's the would-be victim, to have a firearm and protect that right, then you reverse the balance of power. So you take a violent confrontation of 90% of the time where the person who's being attacked really has no, no means <coughs> to protect themselves and enable them to have a way to fight back and to deter the person who would be the violent assailant, then we are not having enough discussion about that. And on top of that, I did further research. I don't know if you all are familiar with the idea of concealed carry. Concealed carry, you can get licensed in various states. Some states, you don't even have to be licensed. You're just allowed to do it. But you can have the ability to walk around the streets and have a firearm on your person, and no one can tell who is, who is armed and who is not armed. And I did some research on this, too, and I found out that John Lott, who's an economist, he was previously at the University of Chicago, he's done a lot of research on gun ownership in the United States. He did a research of 10 states over a 15-year period. And of those states that had concealed carry licensure, they had less than half of the shooting deaths and the injuries than states that did not allow concealed carry. Now this was eye-opening because I think mostly people would say, oh, if you have private citizens walking around with guns, then more people are going to get into fights, or you'll have bar brawls, or you'll have you know, things escalate, or, or we'll just have more violence in our society. But John showed that just the opposite was true. And the beauty of it is even if you're, you live in one of these states, and you choose not to carry because you haven't gotten the training, you don't want to take on the responsibility of carrying, everyone in that state benefits because the bad guys, they don't know if you're carrying or you're carrying or if I'm carrying, so it increases the risk to them that if they take a person on, that they might pay for it with their lives. And this is something that you don't hear very often. And I started just going through news stories. And I found a woman who defended herself successfully with a firearm from five burglars. I found another woman who successfully thwarted an attempted school shooting. I found another woman who used a firearm to save a, her child from a kidnapper. And then I found another woman, another private citizen, who used a firearm to stop a gunman in a movie theater. And you don't really hear those stories. Have any of you heard those stories? No, they don't gain national media attention. 
And I bet you would be surprised to hear this too. Private citizens account for more than one-third of all instances where a violent criminal is killed during the commission of a felony. So if you have a violent felon, a violent criminal who's trying to commit a violent crime, in over one-third of those cases, it's not going to be a police officer stopping that violent criminal. It's going to be a private citizen. Do we hear that on the news? We don't. We don't. And then something else that was just really astonishing to me. There is a liberal professor named Gary Kleck, who is a card-carrying member of the American Civil Liberties Union. So maybe not someone aligned on most issues that women in this room care about or would agree with. But he did a study of what is called defensive gun use. That would be private citizens using firearms to stop violent crime. And he found that there were 2.2 million to 2.5 million instances of defensive gun use per year. Per year. And of those defensive gun uses, 46% of those situations involved women using firearms to protect themselves or their families or their loved ones. And that also never gains media attention. Another thing, think about home invasions. Where homes are having the ability to have firearms in the homes, studies have shown that it reduces the lethality of the attack. So the homes may get burgled or robbed, but if there are firearms in the home, it is less likely that someone will be injured or killed. Now there are spillovers effect of all of this, because if the burglars know that homeowners can and possibly have guns, that also increases the risk to them that they might have to pay with their lives for attempting to enter a home. Criminals can't know in advance who's armed, and so they have to take that into account when they're plotting their you know, violent or criminal activity. And I think it's also important when, I'm citing a lot of studies, uh, these are not the studies cited by Moms Demand Action, these are not the studies that are cited by Bloomberg, these are not the studies cited by people who want to impose more gun control on American citizens. They tend to use studies over and over and over again that have already been discredited that used faulty methodology, had incorrect data, or the conclusions were taken in an extreme way that did not, that was not supported by the evidence of the study. For example, there was a guy named Arthur Kellerman, who was an Emory University researcher, and he was taking data that had been collected from the relatives of homicide victims. So someone was killed, some researchers went to the relatives and friends of the person who was killed and said, did the deceased own a gun? And unfortunately, Mr. Kellerman decided to take this data to say that the guns that were owned by the decedents, the homicide victims, were used in the crime. 
which would put in the mind, and this has been used over and over again by people like Mayor Bloomberg, Moms Demand Action, that if you have a gun in the home, that you're more likely to die of violence from the gun. But the truth is, this is a 1993 paper, and anytime someone's citing something that old, you should be critical of it anyway. But of the 444 homicides, only eight of those deaths involved a gun that had been kept in the home. And if you pull back and actually look at the data, most of the people who had been murdered in the study were strangled, bludgeoned, or killed by a knife or other means. So he undercounted the benefit of defensive gun use because he said that it didn't count as defensive gun use unless the violent attacker was killed. But the truth is, and this is a really important statistic to remember that might surprise you as much as it surprised me, in defense of gun uses, the violent attacker is killed or injured in less than 1% of the cases. And you might think, well, how is that possible? If somebody's you know, violently attacking you and you use a firearm to defend yourself, you're going to have to shoot at him, you're going to have to hit him, why would he stop if you didn't cause him physical pain? Well, the truth is, you know, criminals maybe are not so smart, but when they see, when they're looking down the barrel of a gun, maybe they rethink how much they want to rape, murder, rob, whatever it is that they want to do, because they have self-preservation. So if you remember that, less than 1% of defensive gun uses is the criminal either injured or killed. It is a really helpful fact to keep in your mind when you debate this with friends, college, other college students, or family members. It's also really important to look at this from a feminist perspective. I found a Law Review article by a woman named Inga Larish who said that gun control disproportionately harms women, which I thought was absolutely shown through all of these statistics and data that I was able to pull together. Because the gun control advocates discount the statistical evidence of defensive gun use, like I was explaining to you, the 2.2 million to 2.5 million defensive gun uses per year, and they fail to reduce violent crime against women, increasing gun control measures surprisingly for some, actually fails to reduce violence against women. And when we think about, for a woman, what is the most effective thing that she can have to defend herself against violent attack? It would be a firearm. It immediately reverses the balance of power. And if you don't believe this, just think about where we are right now. We're very close to the Capitol. The people in that building they know that armed security works. They have a Capitol Police Department of 1,800 officers. If you go to the White House, right down Pennsylvania Avenue, there's snipers on the top of the White House. If you go to rock concerts, if you go to banks, if you go to airports, what do they have to protect the people? They have armed security. So we know that armed security works, and we know that a lot of the politicians and the high-profile people who you see on these cute little ads on the internet pushing for more gun control regulations, they rely on armed security in order to protect themselves. When you think about mass shootings, almost all mass shootings have happened in gun-free zones. 
And we know already there are 20,000 gun laws on the books. And unfortunately, they are either under-enforced, the ones that we have on the books right now, or they're selectively enforced. And President Obama, just as a side note, has been particularly bad at trying to enforce and prosecute those people who violate the federal gun laws. So he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. I also like this quote from President Ronald Reagan when I, he was shot when he was president. There was an attempted assassination attempt by John Hinckley. And in his first press conference, after he was released from the hospital and was able to address the press, he made the point that there were over 20,000 gun laws on the books. And still, John Hinckley in Washington, D.C., which, which has one of the most strict gun uh, regimes, gun restriction regimes in the entire country, John Hinckley was able to get a gun and shoot President Reagan. So he didn't see what law number 20,001 would do to have protected him. I want to move into this other point that I want to share with you today, the role of ideology and bias in the gun violence debate. Now, we know that Hollywood is in particular an advocate towards more gun regulations, more restriction of our rights to defend ourselves. And yet we see movies that Hollywood produces are full of violent, ridiculously violent depictions of gunfights and all sorts of mayhem. And so the part that Hollywood could do to improve a safer society, they don't even take control over the area that they have access to and influence. And yet they want to restrict everyone's rights in furtherance of this idea that if we have just a few more laws, then we'll be able to, to uh, reduce gun violence in our society. We see this not only in Hollywood, but also with a lot of the leading newspapers. There was a New York newspaper a few years ago that thought it would be a really good idea to publish in the newspaper the names of all registered gun owners, residential gun owners, in this one town. And they basically put targets on the backs of these people by saying they had guns in their home. So they violated the privacy of all these gun permit holders, which uh, asterisk, this is why a lot of people who support the Second Amendment think we should not have gun registries, because the information can be misused and can imperil people's safety. But on the hypocrisy point of this uh, newspaper in New York, the reporter who wrote the story owned an S&W 357 Magnum and had a residence permit of his own in New York City. So he was relying on guns to protect his own safety. And then we look at the medical profession. So when I started having kids, every year you go for a checkup, they hand you a sheet and they say, be careful this, be careful that. And they always ask you, do you have a firearm in your home? Which is intended to, you know, they think that they're trying to make your home safer, but it also sends a a message to you as a parent saying, you must be irresponsible if you have a firearm in your home. But the truth is, a lot of these, what we would call medical politicians, because they are taking their medical expertise, going out into the national debate about gun violence, 
and trying to make the point, the persuasive argument to increase gun control registration. When I dug into this a little bit, I learned that physicians' negligence causes more deaths every year than firearms. So like Hollywood, instead of the doctors focusing on what they can do to make their profession safer for their patients, they decide to wade into this other area that they have no competence, no expertise in, and restrict our rights. Uh, it was very interesting because I found a study by Edgar Souter, who analyzed Arthur Kellerman, the, the man I was telling you about earlier from Emory University, and he went through a whole bunch of these studies and was able to see that they use faulty methodology, uh, false citations, fabricated data, and there was a complete lack of peer review. I think I must be getting to the end of my speech in question. So I will just say that uh, the media coverage and the sensationalism, another thing that I discovered is that young children are a hundred times more likely to die at a house that has a residential pool than in gunplay at a house that has a firearm. A hundred times. Isn't that a surprising data point that we don't hear from the media? And when we also look at uh, the, the history of the, of the Second Amendment, we understand now we know more that the defensive gun use is 2.2 to 2.5 million defensive gun uses a year. And we understand about medical politicians, Hollywood, liberal media, that they are hypocrites about their use of guns and their discussion in this, or their contribution in this debate. I just want to encourage you all, as you go out, the most important right that you have under our Constitution is the right to keep and bear arms, even if you never ever own or use a firearm, because you benefit from those who do. And to paraphrase James Madison, free and gallant women of America, unlike the people of almost every other nation, have the advantage of being armed. And those who care about women's well-being should safeguard their protection by making sure that we defend the Second Amendment because guns make women safer. And we know that guns are more consequential for women because of size and strength. And over 90% of violent crime happens in the United States without the violent attacker having a firearm. So in those situations, guns reverse the balance of power. We need to preserve meaningful protection for women by safeguarding our Second Amendment rights. And I will leave you with this very important message. Every woman deserves a fighting chance. who cite uh, statistics or evidence saying that women are the number one victims of gun violence and women in abusive relationships are often victims of gun violence within their own home. Right, that is a great point and that is one of those studies that is cited over and over again and if anyone asks me that question, 
I will explain to them about the 2.2 to 2.5 million defensive gun uses per year, and that 46% of those are women. And anyone who throws out their numbers, like there are 33,000 people who die of gun violence every year, you have to be really careful with those numbers and pull it apart because a, a vast majority of those are suicides or people who were justifiably killed in a violent confrontation. And it's a very small number who actually die of gun violence, and most of them, most of those take places in take place in cities like Chicago, which have very, very strong gun laws. So particularly on the women's issue, the answer to that is the studies that you are relying on are faulty. They use bad methodology. They draw conclusions that you can't draw from that evidence. And that usually silences the people because they don't, they're just, they are quoting to you what they heard on NBC. They don't even know who wrote that study. They don't even know the, the methodology of the uh, data collection that went into that study. So if you push back on that a little bit, it, a lot of times when I've started talking to friends about guns and gun rights, they say, well, nobody needs an AR weapon. How do you respond to that? Yes, that's right. That was actually what the New York Times was criticizing me about. Uh, I was able to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on that, and there are over three million ARs, AR-15s, that are owned in the United States right now. And the Supreme Court said that weapons that are traditionally used and general use are protected under the First Amendment. So why would you not think that it's a reasonable for someone like Sarah McKinley in her house in rural Oklahoma to use an AR to protect her family? The problem is that there's an under-prosecution of the laws that we have now, particularly under this administration, and you're not putting the, the criminals who want to use these types of weapons away. You're not identifying them ahead of time. You're not protecting the citizenry. So the, the solution is not banning them for the law abiding. The solution is prosecuting those who want to use them for ill purposes. That is a great question. 